Welcome to ADHD Flourishing, about living awesomely with autism and ADHD. You deserve recognition for both the challenges and the superpowers of this unique neurotype. Let's celebrate wisdom and support from real-life stories, and talk strategies to manage the difficulties of day-to-day life so we can move beyond that to thriving and building a sustainable and awesome life. If you want to be here, you are accepted here, and you belong. I'm your ADHD host, Mattia Murray. Let's do this. Welcome to my guest, Jess Diverges. She or they, I found them on, oh, I want to say TikTok or Instagram first. Either way, one of those things makes amazing content about autism and ADHD. And I have had them on my radar for a while and I was super, super excited that they said yes to this. So I'm very excited to jump in. And is there anything else you'd like to add about how you're thinking about yourself in the world at this time? Oh gosh, what a loaded question. Um, I, if I could put it in like the most nutshell possible, I am basically an ADHD coach, educator, and content creator. Uh, my goal with all of my content and my work is to empower ADHDers mm-hmm. to just go out there and be as audaciously authentic as they damn well please. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And one thing we had touched on right before we jumped on was the episode that was titled like money and surviving capitalism. I think Mm -hmm. that you also had a business as a kid. Yeah. So when I was in, I think fourth or fifth grade, I decided to start a GAC business back when it was called GAC instead of slime. Uh, for the, those Gen Zers out there, I was the OG slime maker. <laughs> um, and it was really, really fun. And it was so interesting reading the transcript from the episode, because just like Mattia, I had no shame deciding to start a business when I was that young. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make so much money. And I wound up you know, selling it to other students in class. And I actually got in trouble for it by the school and had to stop, which was a big shame. But I just, I thought it so interesting, you know, thinking back then of like my opinions on, I guess, being a business owner, even as a nine-year-old versus now, like there is so much more like happiness around owning a business and, you know, basically like asking people for money to like pay me for their services is something that has been a very unexpected part of my trauma healing journey and like something I definitely didn't think was going to happen when. I started being a coach. Like there is so much trauma around, you know, for anyone trying to survive under capitalism. But I think especially as a business owner in 2023, an anti-capitalist business owner trying to, you know, do it in the most ethical and like non-extractive way possible has just been a, a journey and a half. Yeah. And I I have very similar feelings in that like you said, unexpected trauma healing opportunities <laughs> just mm-hmm. all over the place. Um, one thing that I noticed since we you know, do very similar things, I don't know if you've had this experience where when, when I've really tried or like, especially early on, I think when I was like, okay, I just like the main thing that matters to me is that this is as financially accessible as possible. That was actually when I got the most kind of negative comments or people being like, this should just be free, et cetera. And that basically doesn't happen anymore. 
And I, I don't know if it's just because I raised my prices enough that people don't look at it and go, maybe you'll do this for free because <laughs> although I actually sometimes technically do, cause I do have scholarships, but you know, like I, I, I that's the, like one thing that happened that was really hard for me, especially early on was be- people just being like, this should not cost money. How dare you charge money for this? And that that was like a real big shock to my system. Cause I was like, I'm doing a nice thing for people and trying to make it affordable. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting that it, that you found that it changed when you kind of raised your prices. I would definitely love to d- dive into that a little bit more, but yeah, I also, I get comments from people all the time, you know, saying like, this should be free, you know, exactly what, what you said, you know, um, do you offer sliding scale, like all these things like that. And it is because like right now I'm trying, I am trying to make everything as financially accessible as it can be while also making sure that I have a stable income myself, because if I, you know, I, I, I've come around to viewing money as more of an energy resource than like this toxic, you know, capitalism thing. Cause I don't think that it's the capitalism that I don't think it's the money that's the issue. I think it's the capitalism, but yeah, I'm trying to, you know, like I literally price my services by asking myself statistically how many people do I think are going to join this and how much would I need to charge in order to be able to pay my bills for this month and not have to worry about, you know, falling behind on any of that stuff. And it's this really hard balance, especially when I do get those comments from people asking if I give sliding scale or even especially the ones that like just straight up vilify me for daring to charge in the first place. Like those ones really get under my skin more than anything else, because like I am seriously over here trying my best to run a business in an ethical way and make a living as a disabled person who started my business out of necessity because the idea of looking for another W-2 job and like filling out applications and sending out resumes and going through interviews just like sounded like torture for me. Like I can't like this is my only option right now. And especially because it usually comes from like leftists who sort of think that they're fighting for, you know, this anti-capitalist cause, but frankly, you're, you're going after the wrong person. Like I am not single-handedly, you know, keeping my foot on the neck of all these people, forcing people to buy my products. Like I am not target. I am not Monsanto. Like I am (laughs) one person living in a trailer park in a podunk in upstate New York. Like, please redirect your anger to like, you know, actually making change instead of attacking the individual disabled people who are just trying to survive under capitalism like you are. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And and I, well, the other, you know, kind of vein of this is that I almost never see these comments targeted at men with businesses. So, you know, that's a thing. Yes. <laughs> That is very much a thing. Yeah, because it's super ironic that especially as, you know, a mental health coach, which has traditionally been a very female dominated field. And I myself am, you know, I understand what I look like. People look at me and they're like, oh, that's a woman. Um, How dare you charge these marginalized people for your labor and energy? Like you should just want to do it for free. Isn't the altruism of it all enough payment for you? (laughs) And like altruism doesn't pay my bills, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, and like, this is, this is the other kind of side of it that I think of a lot is what am I creating? And obviously, you know, there's this podcast and I have another podcast. I have two podcasts. So that's a bunch of free stuff Mm -hmm. I'm doing. Um, What, what am I creating and putting into the world 
and how is it actually helping people, right? So like, for example, online courses, right? I could make a bunch of free online courses. I know I buy free online courses from people all the time that I never look at a single time, or maybe like look Mm -hmm. at the first lesson or glance at, you know, like it maybe glance at it, but I don't absorb it and take it in. Right. So that's another thing I really think about is even if things are free, like I don't buy into the whole business coach idea that like the more you charge, the more people value it. I don't think that's true. People are, you know, they're smarter than that, but there is something to the idea that if something's actually like free and not easy to consume, that people aren't necessarily getting that much out of it anyway. So, you know, the other thing I've noticed is a lot of times people attach better to like live stuff where the person is live. Like it's easier to show up to a call where, you know, the person's going to be there as opposed to just watching videos of them for some people. Um, obviously that depends. And so then, okay, if you have to be live, you kind of have to get paid for that time. Like you're saying in order to like live and use your energy as a disabled person. So yeah, you know, it's this kind of cyclical thing, but I, I think it's, you know, it's not just the money piece. It's like, okay, how are people consuming this information? And like, is it actually helping them? Are they able to integrate it? Are they able to put it into use in their lives directly? Cause if they're not, then it's just, you know, you could just watch YouTube videos. Yeah. And thank you so much for bringing that up because that's also something I think about too. Cause you know, same, all of us in, you know, on these self-development journeys probably have signed up for all of these free resources and, oh, here's a workbook and here's this course and here's this other course and here's this video and all of this. And then you put it in your notes app or your notion or wherever. And then guess what? You never look at it again because you haven't actually invested anything in it. And especially, you know, when you're already in burnout, motivation is an issue to begin with. And so, yeah, I also think it's really important to uh, uh, keep that in mind as well of like, it's not just for me, it's not just so that I can get, you know, my money so I can be able to do this for you. It's also so that you have a certain amount of energy or resources invested in it so that you are motivated enough to actually go through the material and get the benefit that you're looking for. Plus two, I have so much content on my Instagram and my TikTok that I consider as like free samples of my, you know, courses and stuff. Like, especially on Instagram, a lot of my posts are copy pasted from transcripts of the courses that I have. So if you're looking for like little bite-sized tidbits, like you can absolutely peruse my content all day, feel free. And then when it comes to, you know, my courses and, you know, my, my membership program and all those things, like, okay, for that, it's going to be you know, a little bit more work on your part, a little bit more of an investment, but you're going to get more out of it, so to speak. Yeah. And for myself, when I'm seeking a teacher mentor course, like something to help me directly, that's like for, or for my edification, again, if it's purely informational, I feel like most informational, most information is available for free on the internet. Like somebody has made a YouTube video about this or somebody's written a book that you can get from the library, right? Like this stuff is out there. But when I'm looking for a person to help me, it's because I want them to just kind of like cut through all of that. I don't want to have to go read 10 books right now. Like I just want somebody who knows what this stuff is to be able to like present it to me in a useful way. And then also be able to answer my questions when I inevitably don't understand something. Right. Because that's what, and that's what that like live or sort of like direct component where you get to interact with the person is so powerful. And I, I mean, I think what I'm paying for is just like their, their expertise that they're uh, 
capacity to just kind of cut through. Right, exactly. It's information that, you know, either something I, you know, kind of say in my head all the time, but like, I want to try and say out loud a little bit more, but like, yeah, you, you don't have to buy my services. You could also read all the books that I've read. You could do all the studying that I've done. You could watch the hours and hours and hours of TikToks that I've watched. You can hear from all the people that I've heard of and sort of amalgamate this information on your own. Or you could come to this workshop I'm hosting and it's two hours long and get all of the information that's already been disseminated and filtered through my brain put together in the way that my brain does. And if you like, you know, the way my brain puts things together, I could, you know, kind of streamline that process for you, you know, two years of, you know, individual self-development or a two hour course on boundaries up to you. Hell yeah. <laughs> and yay boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> we all. Uh, so one of the things I jotted down and we don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, um, but before we started recording was that you have a degree in psychology and half a social work master's. I know whenever somebody has half of a master's degree, they left for a reason. <laughs> yeah. I am also that. someone who got very close multiple times to getting a therapy degree and was like, I'll just be a therapist, um, and ended up not going that route. So I'm always curious to hear people's like why they didn't finish that degree story if you want to talk about it i would love to talk about it um so i so i have the the bachelor's in psychology that one was fine and then once i graduated um from undergrad i had plans to start my master's program the year after um however i graduated in december of 2019 and we all know what happened in 2020 so that all kind of got pushed backwards and I wound up figuring out that I was autistic and ADHD in the year after 2020. So in summer 2021 is when all this stuff happened and my master's program got pushed back to the fall of 2021. And so it was about a month before I started that I found out that I had ADHD and then like two months and I found out I was autistic. Meanwhile, I'm in burnout, which I was attributing to depression from the pandemic because I thought that, you know, that was what was affecting my mental health, this, you know, globally traumatizing event. Um, but turns out it was also ADHD burnout. And so I started grad school um, at the very beginning of my self-diagnosis journey, super gung-ho, ready to become a therapist and, you know, help all the people, pick at all of their brains and, you know, actually help them feel better about their lives and make real changes. And my master's program was an online program, which when you're doing social work, that's not exactly the best method, I think, to actually learn how to counsel people and talk to them and co-regulate with people. And the whole time I was in the program, I would just like look around at all my classmates and even sometimes my professors feeling like I knew more than they did, which I feel like sounds so conceited to say out loud, but it's true. Because like, there's one instance that sticks out to me in particular, when we were talking about so-called resistant clients, and they had this list of like signs that your client is resisting therapy and might not actually want to make the changes that they need to make. And I was reading through the list and I actually raised my hand in class and said, I have ADHD and I'm also autistic and I'm looking at this list. And to me, it looks like a bunch of ADHD traits. 
Like, oh, the client didn't do their homework or they get distracted in sessions or they change the topic or this, that, and the other. And I, I pointed out that this sounded like either ADHD or trauma. And the professor was like, oh, you're right. I hadn't looked at it that way before, but thank you for bringing that up because it's really good to keep that in mind that maybe your client isn't just, you know, being stubborn and belligerent. Maybe they have problems that you're not aware of, which is your job as a therapist to get to the root of. And so I finished the first semester. And then during the second semester, I was supposed to have field work, which is basically an internship for social work. My placement was not fantastic. Um, I was essentially assigned to the copy machine to make a bunch of worksheets and things like that because it was a program for children who had either been sexually abused or who had had problematic sexual behaviors themselves. So their clients really weren't in a place to work with an intern to begin with. I'm not sure why they accepted one, but basically I wasn't getting the experience that I was looking for. I wasn't able to directly work with clients. I wasn't, you know, filling out all the paperwork I needed to for my classes. Meanwhile, I am um, doing what felt like such a waste of time um, with the assignments that we would get through our online modules. Like it was a bunch of, you know, essays and questions to answer and things like that. But then we would get to the live class and the professor like wouldn't even know what we had done online because everything was so siloed and everyone was an adjunct and all of this stuff. And I just eventually kind of got tired of it because I felt like I wasn't actually learning anything. I was just working constantly trying to, you know, fill up you know, five pages worth of information that I already pulled out of my brain while, you know, looking up other references after the fact, just so I can have the parentheses and whatnot. And I decided in February of 2022 to drop out and stop wasting my time, basically, because before going to grad school, I already had a really, really good foundation of knowledge about psychology and trauma, both for my degree and also just in my life. Um, I come from a very, very dysfunctional family. I was in an abusive relationship from age 16 to 21. And so I have done a lot of work around that. I've also helped other people with their trauma, like accidentally or like not accidentally, but like not like unintentionally without realizing it sort of. Anyway, so I decided to drop out and become a coach uh, because the idea of staying in grad school and spending that amount of money digging myself even further into debt just to get, you know, that the therapist license and have to adhere to all of the, you know, code of ethics in social work and all of the red tape, all the bureaucracy. Like I, I didn't want to be the person who was like literally required by the law to call the police on a situation that could better be solved with like financial aid or emotional support. I feel like that was a very messy and jumbled way to tell that story. I hope it made sense. My thoughts were all over the place. No, it was, it was chronological. Yeah. I mean, and I even know um, a lot of therapists who are, and therapist friends who are moving toward coaching or partly doing coaching now, even if they're still technically doing therapy because, because of exactly that last point that like you know, you can do things for coaching. You can do things across state lines, which like with telehealth feels like we should be able to figure that out at this point. But I understand that that's going to be slower to change. 
Um, and, and also being able to use, you know, a variety of modalities, which depending on what your licensure is, you're not allowed to right? like for a lot of licensed mm-hmm. clinical therapists, really the only thing they're really allowed to use is stuff that's CBT based right. cognitive behavioral therapy, which does not work for autistic people unless the therapist is specifically trained on how to use CBT with autistic people. (laughs) So, you know, that's another kind of message I like to repeat uh, anytime I get the chance is if you are neurodivergent and you've had bad experiences with a therapist, it could just be in part because they weren't trained to work with your neurotype and they were doing something CBT based. So there are lots of other approaches if you want to try again. Yeah. Yeah, that was the other thing that bothered me when I was in grad school is nobody knew anything about any sort of neurodivergence, like whatsoever. Not no mention of ADHD, no mention of autism, OCD, dyspraxia, dyslexia, even trauma. Like they claim to be so trauma informed. In fact, I remember the first thing we learned about in our program was how to manage and prevent vicarious trauma in yourself as a therapist working with other traumatized people but they never actually taught us how to help other people with their trauma. And it felt so silly to me sometimes, like being at online school, we would be in class and our professor would put us in breakout groups where it was just two students by ourselves, not being supervised by the professor to do role plays of certain clients and like practice answering questions, asking questions in certain ways and like seeing how clients would answer. But it wound up, Like, I felt like I was just playing pretend the whole time. Like, you're not going to help a client, you know, process the fact that their son, you know, died in their arms from getting shot on the street in a 10 minute conversation. Like, that's just not how things work. And to put it frankly, mental health in this country is a circus. Like, no one knows what they're doing. No one wants to admit that they don't know what they're doing. Everyone tries to adhere to one particular modality to solve everything but that doesn't work because humans are multifaceted. You have to meet people where they're at. Like you can't just talk to someone for 10 minutes and recommend a meditation and expect them to, you know, not be depressed anymore. That's not how it works. But haven't you read the stats on meditation? Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if like taking the bird's eye view of the psychiatric profession and the history of it. If you know anything about the history of it, it's like basically all this stuff around the ideas and protection of white men. And then we pretty smoothly transitioned into now everything is based around insurance Mm -hmm. and, you know, being able to like the, the criteria, like it's the, you have to be showing the insurance that you're making progress, which means you have to have a particular kind of diagnosis and you have to be doing particular kind of work, which is why CBT is so favored in part is because it's like a thing that can sort of be tested and you can be like, okay, your number on this scale is higher or lower now. Great. The insurance gets to check that box, but there wasn't really a lot of space in there for other ideas and backgrounds and people to have their ideas met, which is, I think, in part why community healing is such a almost separate thing from the sort of medical side of it, which is, again, another huge topic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The the community healing of it all is so important because, yeah, everything, you know, now in, in mental health, especially, you know, therapy and psychiatry and all that stuff is so very siloed. 
they take people and put them in one room to talk to one person and, you know, hear one perspective, one modality, one whatever. When in reality, a lot of trauma healing, in fact, I would say that the vast majority of trauma healing can't be done on your own. Like we've all been inundated with this pull yourself up by the bootstraps, like hyper-independent mentality where we think that we need to solve all our problems on our own and we can't rely on other people or else we're being codependent. But it's so counterintuitive and it only serves to like push people further down that, you know, trauma hole and keep them in shame of like, well, why can't I figure this out? I've been in therapy for years and I've tried all of these things on my own and I just can't do this. And you know, what's wrong with me? Well, what's wrong is, 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 is capitalism. What's wrong with you is white supremacy. What's wrong with you is we've all been taught that we can solve all this stuff on our own. When in reality, like we can't, we were never meant to. Humans are social creatures. We were meant to connect with other people, lean on other people for support, play to our strengths and just exist without feeling like we need to be everything all the time. And it's so backwards and counterintuitive. Yeah. And where that idea is in part headed for me is this, like, we're so exhausted from doing all the things that we shouldn't really be trying to do ourselves or that we shouldn't be responsible for that should be, you know, community based or at least community supported. You know, we're working more hours than a medieval peasant. I love that meme so much, right? Like (laughs) it's, it's so silly. And then of course we're too tired to be able to, uh, heal alone because, you know, I've done a lot of trauma healing alone just because that's what I had access to as a child, but I was always able to do it in periods of time or in, in spaces that I had where I had a good amount of like grounding support. And for a lot of people, for example, that's with animals, right? Like you can, you can be with an animal and have that like actual physical grounding. Okay. Now there's actually enough like space or energy in your body for you to actually be able to do something with that. Like, and if that's what you want to put that toward as your personal trauma healing, awesome. And if you are not in that space and you don't have that support and you don't have the, you know, co-regulation or like physical grounding in the body, if the If the body just feels bad, it's not going to let you do big, complex, hard stuff, basically. Like anything that it perceives as a threat, it's going to be like, no, let's just not do that. And then it's this sort of spiral thing, you know, where I think for myself and a lot of people where it's like, okay, now I feel like shit and I can't do anything. And so I can't do the things that make me feel better. (laughs) So then I feel worse. And that's where we need other people to like step in and be like, Hey bud, do you need a hug? Do you need a snack? Like, <laughs> do you need to lie down? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, trying to do it on your own just keeps, uh, um, one of my favorite authors, Mark Manson, who wrote the subtle art of not giving a fuck calls it the feedback loop from hell where you're trying to do this thing, but you can't because you know, you're traumatized or you're in burnout. And so you start shaming yourself because you can't do it. And then you shame yourself for shaming yourself because you know, you're not supposed to shame yourself. And it just becomes this like giant cycle where like, you know, eventually you you need to find someone who can sort of pull you out of that and, you know, either physically like turn your head towards like the other thing to maybe look at or even just like distract you for a little bit is also sometimes enough because 
you you can't solve all of the problems like that's impossible you're never going to get rid of all your problems you're never going to get rid of all your stress or your anxiety or your trauma especially if you're an ADHD who's listening to this like this shit's here like there's no cure but what what's okay is like you don't have to always like sit in your trauma you don't have to always be processing things you don't always have to be reading a self-development book you don't always have to be healing sometimes it's okay to just sit there for a minute let yourself be where you are and you know play a video game chat with a friend find some something else to sort of just get your mind off of it for a little bit and then if you find a solution eventually fantastic great bonus and that minute of not working on yourself can expand into a year if you want which (laughs) so part of my process periodically is to actively take breaks from therapy from you know like actually i have not had um like a one-on-one therapist or coach for like the last year and a half or so that sounds about right i'm about to jump back in and like i just needed that like refresh in my And it's a partly an energy thing too. It's not just, oh, I don't want to hear other people's ideas or I don't want to spend the time. It's like, I, I like to work on things cyclically and I don't want to always feel like I'm working on something, which I think is what it can start to feel like. Cause there's an endless amount of things that you could in theory change about yourself. (laughs) Right. Exactly. It's literally endless. And I, it's funny you say that because I've also been sort of thinking lately that maybe I need to also take a break from all of this stuff because I, you know, I say it's okay to take a break from trauma healing. Meanwhile, I've been reading at least one book at a time for the last like two years. I've been signing up for all the courses still. I see a therapist every week. Um, but I've been, you know, sort of, I think I am moving towards like more of an integration stage, kind of what you said of just like pausing and saying, okay, Let's let's look at all the things that like we've already learned. Let's look at the things we already know and, you know, actually let all of that stuff absorb because um, another quote I really like that I'm not sure who said it originally, but I find that I need to be reminded of things more often than I need to be taught. And that is like so true. I don't know how many lessons I've learned like dozens and dozens of times that like I'm talking about a problem and I'm sure there's no solution. Like what's happening? What's going on? I have no idea. And then boom. Oh, look, it's perfectionism again. Who's surprised? Not me. Um, So yeah, definitely taking a break from trauma healing is part of trauma healing because, you know, another thing too, not only, you know, are you expending energy continually trying to improve yourself and change things, but you're also sort of sending that message internally to your nervous system and to yourself of like, we're not okay right now. We need to be better. We need to improve. And it just like, again, is a very, very sneaky type of shame where you're not letting yourself just be where you are. You're not just letting yourself be a mess for a second, which I understand it's very hard because like it's uncomfortable to like not have these things to like sort of look forward to and and take your mind off of it. But sometimes it can it can seriously make all the difference. Yeah, I heard a quote the other day that was like trauma healing is something like being okay with or present with who you are right now Mm -hmm. like that it's not about some future version of you that is fixed from this version it's actually just getting to know and being okay with the person that the trauma shaped you into which is who you are now and what your brain is now 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. I wonder if it was it was mine because I made a post the other day saying that like trauma healing isn't about trying to change who you are. It's about getting comfortable with who you already are. That it could like, have been you then. You've, yeah. Yeah, you've you've <laughs> been trying to change. Like you've been yeah. trying to get comfortable with your trauma. You've been doing it this whole time. That's what your trauma is. It's like you've been trying to fit yourself into whatever box or role you think you need to play in order to be accepted. And you've been sort of, you know, hiding away these authentic parts of yourself. So I think, you know, a question to ask when you're healing trauma isn't, you know, who who do I want to be? It's who have I been pretending not to be? And then going from there. Yeah. And one of my teachers uses in the sort of, in her version of polyvagal theory, uh, she has, so there's, you know, fight, flight, freeze, fawn, and she also has fix as one of them, like that that's can, can be a trauma response to just like always be fixing. And I was like, Oh, that's me. That's mine. That's one of mine. Yep. <laughs> yep. Fun and fix. That's yep. yep. my two flavors right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause it feels good in the moment. It gets, there's yeah. like, there's something to do. There's like, and I was actually just talking to somebody about this today that there's this like end result thing. So we're talking about like things that make us feel not just good, but like things, things that are, are like deeply relaxing and that it can be relaxing to do things that are like expressing mastery, like things you're already really good at. Um, and the examples we were using were like for her martial arts forms. And for me, violin, I'm like, I can do this. <laughs> I could just do it. And it just feels good. And I'm like, yes, I have done it. And there's like an end point and I can like play the piece correctly. Right. And it feels good. And that that's like such a, that, that, scratches such a particular itch in my own brain. And I think it's probably partly autism related (laughs) that like part of me is like, Oh, it feels so good to just do something correctly. And I think that it's that same urge that has me wanting to like fix myself or kind of that, that has this, even an idea of like a final version of what some of these things might be when really in my actual lived experience, you change, but you can't necessarily predict how you're going to change or what, you know, we're so complex. We're such organic beings that you change something and then it has all these ripple effects. And now all these other things that anyway, I I feel like it's basically impossible to predict what, what the changes are actually going to do. Yeah. Which is so fucking scary when you're autistic is accepting all of that uncertainty because, you know, part of trauma healing is embracing, you know, the cyclical nature of everything. And like, yeah, you don't know who you're going to be in a year. You don't know, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know how you're going to change. Okay, but I need to know what to expect. How do I prepare? Like, where's the data? How do I gather the data? What do I need to know in order to da 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 all this stuff? And like, it's it's so scary, you know, when you, when you have this brain that is so sort of systems oriented and, you know, the, the bottom up thinking that we do, we like to start from like get the big picture of it all and like sort of know where we're going before we get started. One of the things that I I talk to my clients a lot about, I was actually just talking about this a couple weeks ago in a coaching call is like how to get um, like how to sort of accept that uncertainty. And what I try and encourage people to do is focus on the things that um, you can control in the moment. Because like exactly what you said, like you mentioned with with your violin, sort of being able to find something to be able to master and get that sense of accomplishment of like, oh, I have done this thing, sort of that that end result. So like for me, I sort of, I try and get that energy. I call it like the grind energy out 
by playing like either Animal Crossing or Stardew Valley have been like my two major hyper focuses this year. Those games are so great for like checking all the boxes. Like I go and I literally every single morning play video games for at least one to two hours just so I can sort of get that feeling of like, yes, I have completed a to-do list. All of my boxes are checked off and now I can go to, you know, work and do, you know, whatever I want to do um, is one way to do that. Or also just understanding that like we do have more control over things than we like to believe. So for example, like, yeah, you can feel shitty in a moment, but you know, you can decide what what you do with that shitty feeling. Like, do you want to lay in bed and, you know, scroll TikTok all day? Do you want to maybe get up and move to the couch? Like, do you want to text a friend? Do you want to look outside? All emotions are valid, but like you, you at a certain point you have to sort of empower yourself to manage them in like ways that that are a little bit more effective or like choosing who you like spend time with or like if you're someone who overworks a lot and doesn't take a break at work maybe take five minutes you know find those like little things throughout your day that you do have control over just to kind of deal with the nebulousness of everything else yeah and one thing I want to add to the list of like what to do with those big feelings, just because I love this one is decide to wallow for a while. Like, like I love a lot of how I get my sensory seeking is through like intensity of internal stimulation because my body can't handle a lot of intense stimulation. So I have to like do it more internally. And one of the ways I do that is by feeling emotions really intensely and letting myself, you know, like play a song that helps me kind of amp that up. The funny thing is when you really lean in to even like quote a bad feeling um, and really try to like wallow and like be really dramatic about it, it does lessen it in my experience every single time. Like there's only so much you could do before it, it kind of crosses to being silly and like feeling silly, which is also fun. But like I, I get a lot of my uh, uh, sensory seeking needs met through just like extreme emotional wallowing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's the thing about leaning into emotions and why, you know, it's it's so beneficial to to do that and like really really let yourself feel something instead of, you know, pushing it down and letting it bottle up is because your body can only do so much emotioning. And when you do finally let them, you know, process and sit there, like and it's so like it's one of those things that makes me feel so silly sometimes now that I'm actually like letting myself feel feelings instead of suppressing them is like when I do it they only last like a minute and a half sometimes. Yeah. Like last week, I went to like show my girlfriend something that I was really, really excited about. And they they did not do this on purpose. I love my partner. They are literally perfect and so supportive. But when I showed them this thing, they, you know, pointed out something that they thought could have been different about it, which is a trauma trigger for me. I, you know, grew up being criticized for like if it wasn't perfect, you know, what was the point kind of thing. And when they said that, I, you know, in the moment felt myself trying not to be upset, but then I was like, well, no, I'm upset about this. And so I like sort of let it sit there. I'm like, no, we're not going to stop it. We're going to feel it. And I literally started crying right there and like held up my hand as, as my partner was talking. I was like, wait, like that made me sad just now when you pointed this thing out about, you know, what I'm trying to show you, I'm excited. And, you know, they realized what they had done. They apologized. You know, we talked about it. They gave me a hug. And like literally a minute later, I was fine. And it was so amazing. Like 
So yeah, let yourself feel your feelings, whether it's, you know, just a quick thing like that, or even like, I like to watch really, really sad movies. If I need a good cry, I'll put on, yeah, like Moulin Rouge Rouge or something and just like really let myself just like sob because sometimes you just have to let the stuff out. You might not know why you need to cry, but sometimes you just got to let the wallow happen. Mm -hmm. And that's really interesting too, that you use it as like a, a sort of sensory stimulation. I had never thought about that, but I, yeah, that that's relatable really interesting perspective yeah yeah it's effective and uh yeah i mean emotions physiologically most of them last for 60 to 90 seconds in the body if we don't grab onto them and do anything with them like that's the that's the hormone wash or whatever is happening with that particular yeah. thing which sounds so fake if you if you're someone who's been like dissociating from your emotions for forever like 90 seconds exactly no freaking way but no yeah i'm telling you 90 seconds yeah that's it yeah it does it does feel fake but it is in fact real that is yeah how emotions work a lot of the time so oh i also want to make sure we touch on your membership because i was so excited when i saw you put this out there um because i literally have been i've had in my mind like oh i should probably make some kind of group support like this. And then you literally made what I had in mind. So I'm very excited that it exists and that I can send people to it. Yeah. Can you tell us about it? It's for ADHD people, right? Yes. So it's called the Combo Platter Community, which um, I called it the Combo Platter because I like to refer to ADHD as like the combo meal because you have both autism and ADHD. And then I like to use a lot of food metaphors and stuff because I actually have a degree in baking and pastry arts and I was a baker for like seven years. So that's why that's a thing. And the program is for late accepted ADHDers. So either people who are self-diagnosed as adults like me or who were diagnosed as kids, but felt that they didn't have the proper neurodiversity affirming support and might still be dealing with a lot of trauma from masking and all of the stuff that we all go through whether we found out when we were young or when we were, you know, 45. And the main um, sort of goal of the program is to help us, like, give ADHDers a space where they can feel comfortable, like, sort of taking up space and being imperfectly brave and processing our trauma, sharing our lived experiences with each other, which are so important. Like, I have learned things from TikTok that I would never have learned in any sort of book or never knew of through my, you know, psychology degree and all the social work stuff and all this, you know, other like official education. And basically to process our trauma, overcome things like people pleasing and perfectionism, and hopefully become the audaciously authentic ADHDers that we were all meant to be. We have bi-weekly group coaching calls they start at 1 p.m. on Thursdays and there's no time limit. So the idea is if you have something you like, if you have a question or something you want to be coached on, you come and you raise your hand and I talk to you one-on-one until you feel like your question has been answered. Um, this way it removes sort of like any time constraints. Um, I encourage members to take up as much space as they want to. And so I can, this way I'm able to sort of stay until like everyone has been coached and you also get the benefit of having sort of a a combination of individual and group support because you get to talk to me one-on-one during the calls. 
But then you also get the benefit of hearing from other people and getting different examples of how things can look, finding, you know, ways that people deal with their stressors and trauma that are different from yours and getting those like diverse perspectives that you might not have have thought of if you were just working one-on-one with someone. Yeah. And the being witnessed in a group as well has been so healing for me when I've been in similar spaces where just realizing, oh, okay, coming on here and talking, I know I'm just talking to you, but these other people are here also. <laughs> and that that felt so much scarier when I've done that, but it's also been, I mean, basically every single time I've done that in a group setting, it's ended up, I've, I've just realized like, oh, a bunch of people feel this way. Like this is not a unique problem to me. And this is not, I don't, I don't want to say it's not that big a deal because obviously our problems are always a big deal to us in mm-hmm. the moment, but that like, I'm thinking, oh my God, this is like unsolvable and no one could understand me. And I'm having this problem all alone. And then so much of that just dissolves naturally when you're sharing in a group and everybody's like, oh, me too. Or like, oh, I like that totally makes sense. It's just like, to me, it, it feels like faster processing than just talking to somebody one-on-one sometimes. Yeah, definitely. Because a lot of times too, like, it's so interesting to me how people will, will come with, you know, all of these problems they think are like so complex and there's no way, like I'm the only one who who's dealt with something on, on this scale just having someone listen to you and understand what you're saying and basically say, oh my gosh, like that must have sucked so bad. You shouldn't have had to go through that. Like, I'm so sorry. Like you deserved better than that. Even though that's not technically a solution, like just that one sentence, the, the like moment of like just feeling seen and not like you're, you know, uniquely unsolvable can remove such a surprising amount of weight just from from being seen and like knowing that other people understand yeah so yeah i'm super excited this space exists we will obviously put that link in the show notes and uh I, I, yeah i just i feel like for neurodivergent people and disabled people in general like there's there's not a lot of great stuff out there for us by us i mean it exists but it's not necessarily like the biggest flashiest thing, right? Like you're not out there buying um, a bunch of Instagram ads all the time. So every ADHD person sees this, it's kind of like you have to, you know, you find out about it through people. And I feel like the, the community aspect of it, the being witnessed in a group and, and just being able to hear other, you know, cause you've got all of the call replays as well. Like being able to just hear, mm-hmm. oh, here's, you know, four different ways that people have solved <laughs> this problem that I have, that most of us have. And it's just like a really common ADHD thing. Yeah. It just, I think there's, there's something really special about feeling not alone, especially because my experience of this neurotype is that it wasn't until I realized that I was ADHD, like as this combined thing, that things really started to click into place for me because just autistic and just ADHD, like I was like, yeah, it's close. Well, I guess it's like being non-binary too. I was like, yeah, I'm not, <laughs> not exactly that. <laughs> oh my God, what a good metaphor. I never thought about it that way. It's so true though. It's so true. And, you know, yeah, I, I remember reading the transcript from the episode you talked about that, where you view it as one, like one combined neurotype instead of having these two contradictory neurotypes. 
And that makes so much sense because it creates like an entirely different experience just on its own, whether you're ADHD or just autistic or just ADHD. And like, oof, I could talk about this for hours and hours too, but I know we're running out of time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Let's, let's wrap up for the sake of our lovely ADHD listeners. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Awesome. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to say that you feel like we didn't get to or or that you just kind of want to like reiterate for folks that you're just like this, I want to make sure this message comes through? The only thing that's coming to mind as far as last words is if you are an ADHDer who is struggling with trauma and trying to, you know, improve yourself or, you know, help yourself feel better, I see you and you're doing amazing. And I something for yourself today that is super fun because you deserve it. Yay. Seconded. Thank you so much. We will. Oh, and, and what's a good place for people to find you online? Oh yes. Yeah. So I am on TikTok and Instagram at Jess J E S diverges. Um, you can go to justdiverges.com to read all about all my different products and things. And um, if you go to my Instagram or TikTok, you'll also find my link tree, which has links to a whole bunch of stuff as well. And you can email me at jess, J-E-S, at justdiverges.com. Awesome. I think that's it. <laughs> Thank you again. Links will be in the show notes and talk to you next week. Thanks so much. Thank you. I hope that sparked some ideas or possibilities for your own journey. If you'd like to go deeper, I invite you to click on the link in the show notes to join my newsletter, where I share more on these topics, point you to community resources, and share cute pictures of animals. I only send it when I have something meaningful to say. A friend put it well. With your newsletter, I feel like the predictability is in the quality, not the quantity, and it feels delightfully magical to have it pop up whenever it feels like it. Plus, you can respond directly to me, which I love. That link is in the show notes, or you can easily find it at my website, mattiamarae.com, M-A-T-T-I-A-M-A-U-R-E-E.com. 